0: The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Redneck Margarita Edition. On today's show, Black Panther is the record-chattering movie, the first from the Marvel Cinematic Universe to star a black superhero being uh, adored by audiences and critics alike on the way to a billion in global B.O. We'll be joined by Carvel Wallace, who's the parenting advice columnist for Slate, as well as co-host of Mom and Dad are Fighting podcast. And then Queer Eye gets a Netflix reboot. Is this purple state nirvana or gay minstrelsy? We'll discuss with Slate's own Brian Lauder. Finally, the New York Times op-ed page, a daring challenge to liberal piety or just a total basket case. Joining me today is uh, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana.
1: Hey, Steven.
0: And filling in for the swimming pool size shoes of Julia Turner, we have big footed Willa Paskin, <laughs> Slate's TV critic. I, I have no fear that those shoes are filled.
2: Clomp, clomp. Hi, Steve. Hi, Dana.
1: <laughs> are you ready for the Fab Five to come over and make you 15% I'm, better?
0: I'm waiting on the corner of gay and straight. Please. <laughs> <laughs> Black Panther entered the theaters uh, this past weekend with the expectation bar set very high across the board. The movie was directed by Ryan Coogler, who took the ultra stale Rocky franchise and made it into something new and like really genuinely vital. I thought it was a terrific movie and an auteur film. Totally unexpectedly, it was called Creed, but I guess it was Rocky 7 or 8, whatever. We don't care. Safe to say the bar uh, has been cleared by Black Panther and by a mile. The film's been greeted rapturously by audiences, sent it to a huge opening day weekend. Critics by and large love it. It stars Chadwick Boseman as Chala, heir to the throne of of Wakanda, a hidden African nation upon whom the humiliations of colonial exploitation have never been visited. It co-stars Lupita Nyong'o as his uh, sidekick or friend or Co-equal, Nakia, Angela Bassett, Andy Serkis, and Forrest Whitaker are also in it. And I must say that Michael B. Jordan is uh, marvelous as the villain or was he the villain? This is a great discussion to have. Killmonger. Uh, why don't we listen to a clip?
2: Ulysses Klo plans to sell the vibranium to an American buyer in South Korea tomorrow night.
3: Klo has escaped our pursuits for almost 30 years. Not capturing him is perhaps my father's greatest regret. I wish to bring Claw back here to stand trial.
1: Wakanda
2: does not
4: need a warrior right now. We need a king. My
0: parents were killed when he attacked. Not a day goes by when I do not think about what Claw took from us. From me.
2: It's too great an opportunity to pass.
0: Take me with you. We'll take him down together side
4: by side. I need you here, protecting the border.
0: Then I ask, do you kill him where he stands, or you bring him back to us?
3: You have my word. I will bring him back.
0: Well, we're joined for our discussion by Carvel Wallace. Carvel, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me.
2: Carvel, you wrote a fantastic piece for the New York Times Magazine about black panther that everyone should go read that talked all about um sort of the importance of the movie and the importance of the black panther mythos um in general and and i thought that in that piece it was which was great it was also clear that you had not yet seen the movie and so i'm really interested to know what you thought of the movie when you actually saw it i mean it did it did it live up to everything that you so wonderfully explained like you did it live up to everything that you thought it was going to be
4: it did because what I was writing about in the New York Times piece was more about the moment of the movie than the actual film itself. So like it wasn't a like this is going to be such a great film, such a great cinematic exercise, and it's and because this because this technical cinema is going to be so great, it's going to have all this meaning. I was writing about what the what it would mean to see this movie in Oakland um, on opening night at, and what it meant in the larger cultural sense. And like my experience was that. The viewing experience held up to that, and and, and in a larger sense, this, this moment has held up to that. Um, the film itself, I was not surprised to find was actually also very good, and um, we really loved the film. We actually saw it twice. We saw it opening night, and because it was such a like mob scene at the at the Grand Lake Theater in Oakland, our seating arrangements were less than ideal, and so we ended up coordinating another viewing. On Sunday at a at a bigger like mall theater that had like a million showings or whatever, and so we got to sit like dead center of the theater, dead center of the aisle, and just watch the movie again. And it was we all thought it was even better the second time because we were able to catch everything.
2: The thing that struck me about this movie, just even thinking about it, is there's just so much to think about. Like it is, uh, Jamal Bouet wrote a, wrote a review for Slate, and he talked about how it's just like full of ideas, and it really is full of ideas. There was like lots of actual political perspectives to think about in the movie and to think about after um, you left the theater. And I have been thinking about them, and I just basically want to talk about, like, it's
4: politics. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I mean, one thing to start with, I think, that that surprised me and pleased me about this movie is that it's not really about racism. I mean, it's not about white-on-black racism, certainly, hardly at all. There's, there's essentially two white characters that are— it becomes a running joke in the movie how much at the margins they are, and that it really is a story about— for one thing, an imagined black utopia and what that would look like and feel like. And secondly, about, as you say, Willa, about political debates and dissension within the black community or between the Wakandans, right? This, this fictional utopian African nation where the Black Panther comes from and, you know, black America, basically Oakland, which is where Ryan Coogler, the director, comes from and where he sets his uh, his parts of the story that are outside of Africa.
4: That's part of what I think a lot of people missed when they were hearing about the oncoming of the movie. I remember I was on another show talking about this and a caller called in to the radio station and was like, you know, I hope this movie preaches nonviolence as a way to deal with racism. And I was like, that was such a weird call to me because I was like, this movie isn't even about that. But it occurred to me that, that that was the impression that a lot of people had that somehow all of blackness has to exist in relationship to whiteness. Whether it's like a resistance to whiteness, or um, you know, a kind of assimilation into whiteness, but the whole, the whole point of the power of this moment is that Wakanda um, is, as Ava DuVernay said in the New York Times piece when I interviewed her, that it it, it is really about a, a much a, a, a bigger question, which is what is blackness without whiteness? What is identity without, what is our identity without whiteness? And that's something that Ryan Coogler, who I also spoke to for this piece, was really interested in. Like identity is his kind of driving question. And this film is about identity um, in a lot of ways. and, And that has nothing to do with whether, or, I mean, like whiteness and white racism and all of American history sort of exists in this universe. But that isn't the primary point. It isn't about that. It isn't around that. It isn't in response to that. And in some ways, that's maybe like the most radical and possibly empowering aspect of the film. Um, you know, I, like there, the question, who are you, exists in this film a lot. It exists in very key moments. It's like entire plot points turn on that singular question, a person either being asked or answering or refusing to answer the question, who are you? this is a, this is a film about black identity and it while it overlaps and you can't help but to view it in relationship to 2018 America it's not necessarily about that
0: it's both as you say carvel this conflict about who you are and what constitutes you know a black identity infusing what can otherwise be these overextended, boring action set pieces that addle the superhero drama because you feel as though nothing's at stake they're noisily noisy jangly large they have to there's a maximalist aesthetic because they have to be bigger than the last avengers or iron man movie that you saw and they're just boring these aren't boring at all because he took that question and he made it central to the heroism and the villainy of the picture so that you're actually like freaking rooting for something i
2: mean one of the things that's really interesting about the movie is that it sort of stops being about like the stakes of the world blowing up like it's not about the world yeah coming to an end and it's about these characters um and it's about wakanda and figuring out um sort of these more personal questions and and one of the so sort of like the some of the ideas that are infusing the movie are like what is what is the right thing for a person like ideologically how should a person live if you're like trying to do the best for the most people or you're trying to do your best in the world like what what should a person do like what should a, a black american do what should a Black, what should, what should Wakandan do? And and there's really, um, I think the movie's sort of amazing because it it totally understands that it's this mass entertainment, and so it is putting these sort of um, not even like these sort of uh, very progressive ideas into the movie that it then is packaging in a way um, that kind of maybe uh, lets them seem safer than like they are but then they've been shown to 400 million dollars worth of ticket goers so um, that's like an amazing thing this movie does and I think there's been some critique from sort of from the left that by not um, by not essentially having Killmonger like point of view become clearly victorious it's um, the movie is somehow has bad values but I think the amazing thing about this movie is it got that message into a Marvel movie and like made it pretty sympathetic and is now being seen by everyone in the world
4: one of the reasons this isn't a save the universe story is because this is an origin story, a home planet story. So if you think of the Marvel Cinematic Universe as the collection of all these superheroes, each one of them comes from someplace. And so there are separate movies that go back to the origin places of where these people come from. And, and we learn about their background story, how they were created, what they had to fight in order to get there. Um, but ultimately Marvel is going to bring all these characters back together in order to save the universe. And, and, um, without giving too much away, the way the film ends, particularly in the mid-credit scene is absolutely about that. It's about what's going to happen in future films. There's a key plot thing that takes place in the mid-credit scenes that will be necessary for Marvel to continue its larger story of all these superheroes in their battle, their ultimate battle against, for the, for the, for the sake of the universe. So that's one thing. The other thing is that, yeah, this thing about the, about Killmonger, whether or not Killmonger was right. I, I, I've also heard this critique from some people in the left that that because Killmonger um, is, quote unquote, the bad guy in the film, that the film is, abs- is saying that his methodology, that, that he is all bad. But also Marvel films don't necessarily do that. I mean, Loki is, um, is a, also a bad guy who has a point, who has a relatable argument. And bad guys with a point is kind of one of Marvel's big um, contributions to like the Magneto. superhero genre. Yeah, Magneto as well. And, and Killmonger is perhaps the best execution of this idea that just because he's the quote-unquote bad guy doesn't mean he doesn't have a point. And the fact that people are leaving the theater going, wait a second, Killmonger actually was making sense. That's not, big, that, that's not an accident. The film is written that way. It's, the character is written that way. He's written to make sense, and 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 so at the so the the film itself points to very important real questions about um, neoliberalism versus radicalism, about Africa and African Americans, about isolationism versus um, kind of like globalism. It points to those questions. It doesn't answer them. But the people in the film come to a conclusion. But I don't think the film itself is meant to answer them. The film itself is meant to have you leaving, scratching your head and going, "Well, wait a second. I'm not sure that I really have agree with all this." You know what I'm saying? I don't think the film is saying like, "And this is what's good, and this is what's bad." Thank you for coming to my movie. I think it's really going, "Man, this is a complicated question." And and you know, T'Challa has to make his decision, but he's faced with a treacherous moral dilemma. And the character's always been written that way ever since the, the nineties runs of the, of the character. He's been written as a guy who faces really severe political questions that apply to the world. Can an advanced nation have a singular monarch? Can a good man be king? That's a question that's posed in the film. Can you be a king and also a good person? That's like a real question. And T'Challa like has to figure out how to try to do that, but the film doesn't suggest. Or I don't think, in my opinion, it doesn't fully land on whether or not he succeeds. He's just trying. But, um, but Lupita Nyong'o's character wants to do something else. And Killmonger's character has another way that he thinks that should go. And so that's kind of what the film is meant to leave you with.
1: Yeah. And there's so much of that dialogue within the film. I mean, among different characters, right, between Lupita's character, Nakia, is that her name? And uh, and Mm -hmm. the king, T'Challa. And then, of course, between, especially nearing the end and the kind of big face off between Killmonger and the Black Panther... Those, those debates are taking place in this very uh, forward way. It almost I, – I, in my notes scribbling during the movie, I wrote something about Plato's Republic because it just reminded me of that kind of mm-hmm. philosophical engagement with the idea of what is a good city.
2: Yeah, one of the things that was so <laughs> interesting to me about the movie um, is the way that it's about America. Like so Wakanda is this um, – I mean, America's racial history makes that a sort of a weird. You almost don't want it to be about America because, like, of all our horrible racist and ongoing history and present. But this idea of like being the the country, like the the country that's like that's sitting on the hill, right? Like, what if Wakanda is like this ideal, this place that is totally functional and has. Um, and is is like a good nation. How do you go out into the world as a good nation? I mean, they even talk about this, and they're like, we think we're strong enough to sort of protect ourselves and to help people in the world. But like in that movie is also all this text about um, sort of like there's an original sin, like the Wakandan king has done this terrible thing that is sort of, created some of the circumstances of the movie. Mm -hmm. And that obviously is like totally directly corollary to America and are messing up everything all the time. And like, can you so so some of the things about resolving these questions of like, what should a nation do is in conversation with what America has actually done and how bad we've been at exporting our values. Uh, And this is like some of the neoconservative stuff that you that you the Carvel that you mentioned, but it's like, There is no easy solution because literally it's in conversation with this thing, this this mess that we're in and that like our our, the history of our country, like independent of even our racial history, but just like as a as a as like an imperialist power, basically.
4: Yeah, and I think it's I mean, I think that the way America factors into this is layered, though, because um, because Wakanda might represent America, the brand, but (laughs) Killmonger represents America, the reality. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. um, you know, Killmonger is is he is American foreign policy. You he's know? one of ours and as the CIA agent. Says. He's one, he's of, one ours. of ours. And like yeah. we, yeah. I mean, he's one of ours, and like he was trained as one of ours. And the way he goes about doing what he does in the film, there's no um, there's no kind of like ambiguity about the fact that those are American tactics that he learned as an American, that he learned from the highest levels of the American government. And so, on the one hand. Um, he, I mean, he's a, he's such a great character because he's two things. He's a kid from Oakland and he's also a high level CIA operative. And so he, and so he represents a perfect mix of these two things. And um in that sense, I mean, you could argue that he is, <laughs> you could argue that he's really African American in that sense, like in the truest sense that he's, a, that he has this past, but he's, he was raised in this present and trained in this in this way of looking at the world and that that is part of what makes him so powerful and so dangerous and so confused. And, you know, you, you just like, he's a character that you're, you know, you're like, you, you recognize that he's right, but you also recognize that he's wrong, but then you recognize that he's right, but then you recognize that he's wrong. And I think, again, that's like part of what makes this film so powerful is it's just always good when you have a, uh, a uh, quote-unquote bad guy who, who allowed the audience to go in that journey with him.
1: I think it's worth saying, too, that Michael B. Jordan just plays that ambiguity and the conflict and just the anguish of that character so beautifully. This is the third film he's done. He's been in every one of Ryan Coogler's movies, and they're now working on a next project together. And maybe it's it's that connection. I'm not sure. But to me, Michael B. Jordan, as good as the whole cast is, just runs away with the mm-hmm. movie.
0: All right. Well, thanks a lot, Carvel, for coming on the show. His piece in the February 12th edition of the New York Times Magazine is Why Black Panther is a Defining Moment for Black America. Carvel, thank you so much for coming on the show.
4: Thanks a lot for having me.
0: All right. Now, before we go any further, I'm sure, Dana, we have some business to uh, get through. What do we have?
1: Indeed we do. First of all, tickets are now on sale for our live show at the Bell House in Gowanus, Brooklyn, on March 7th at 7 p.m. We're going to be sponsored by the upcoming miniseries Collateral on Netflix, and it is a show to celebrate our 10th anniversary. We began broadcasting in 2008. As part of the pre-show, Netflix is sponsoring Trivia with the comedian and writer Kate James. So if you come, prepare to put on your knowledge of political thrillers, murder mysteries, and conspiracy storylines. The live show will start after the trivia at 7.30 p.m. So again, that's March 7th at the Bell House in Brooklyn. You can go to Slate.com slash live for more information. And remember, if you're a Slate Plus member, you get a discount on your ticket. Also, a quick note to let you know that Slate Live is thrilled to present Employee of the Month, which is a late-night talk show all about work recorded in front of a live audience. Every month, the host, Katie Lazarus, shares the stage with the people who interest and inspire her the most for candid conversations about the work they do. This month, she'll be joined by comedian Hannibal Burris, actor Emily Mortimer, and a musical guest, Resistance Revival Choir. The show is March 15th at the Gramercy Theater in New York City. For more information and tickets, you can visit slate.com live. Also, check out The Good Fight, a podcast from Slate where Yasha Monk speaks to academics, journalists, and politicians searching for ideas, policies, and strategies that can beat authoritarian populism. Recent guests include Anne Applebaum, Matthew Dancona, Nick Casey, E.J. Dion. The list goes on and on. It's called The Good Fight, and you'll find a new episode every other Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, in Slate Plus today, we have a great opportunity to interview Peter Spears, who was one of the producers of Call Me By Your Name, I think one of all of our favorite movies from last year. We're going to ask him about how he came to make the film from the novel by Andre Asiman and what it's like to be a part of the Oscar race. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program, which is a great way to support the magazine. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And, of course, in return, you get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and many other wonderful benefits. So if you want to help support the Culture Gab Fest, please go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, Stephen, back to it.
0: The more that I'm getting to know him, I realize that there's a lot going on underneath. And he's very open about sharing that as well, which is such a gift.
2: You guys might make me look better, yeah. but one thing you can't do, you can't fix ugly.
3: Oh. You, you need to stop saying that. Yes. You two need to stop saying that. It's not true. This it
2: happened like seven go. to 10 years ago, and if you were a gay man, you would've been my husband. So there's nothing ugly about it,
0: okay? Hey, do y'all want a redneck margarita? I actually would try one. Well. I would try one. Well.
3: Tequila and Mountain Dew. That actually sounds really good. Who doesn't love margaritas? Who doesn't love Mountain Dew? Who doesn't love tequila? <laughs> so honey, that
2: shit was gross AF. <laughs> 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 that was
3: the most disgusting shit ever. <laughs> what? Oh, God damn! What is Mountain Dew in oh,
0: it? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy premiered in 2003. It's been rebooted by Netflix. Uh, During its original run, it was renamed Queer Eye. Uh, As they say on the new one, the original show is about fighting for tolerance. Our show is about fighting for acceptance. I would argue both shows are about uh, how straight American men are crippled. Uh, Brian Lauder is joining us now. He's associate editor of Slate. Brian, I'm going to confess to you up front, I laughed, I cried, I loved this reboot and then I read your piece and uh, you may have argued me out of it, but uh, tell me what you thought of the original and about this one and um, why my tears might have been a uh, false consciousness. That's funny. I think I actually argued
3: myself out of liking it and writing that piece. I I, uh, I definitely laughed uh, and, and you know, awed and, and at certain moments uh, in watching it. But as I reflected on it uh, and, and as I write in the piece, I decided that it was Really politically strange now. I think I think the original series, um, to the extent that I remember watching it when it was on television, uh, made a little more sense because we were in a moment of increasing. Um, sort of cultural acceptance and, and legal, legal uh, um, evolution for, for queer people, or at least gay and lesbian people, let's say. Um, and so it made a little bit of sense at that moment to do a kind of outreach um, and, and sort of um, showing of what we're like and that, you know, we're not, we're not so scary and maybe we can even help you um, to these straight men. Uh, and I think now uh, th- that we're in a moment where uh, things are a lot more precarious uh, politically for queer people, especially trans folks, um, this kind of outreach feels a little uh, unwarranted. And so in, in the piece that I wrote, that that's kind of the position I came to that that I wanted. I, I, I wasn't feeling so generous about sharing uh, queer joy and skills with with guys in MACA hats.
1: Yeah, well, I think an important thing to note re MAGA hats is that we're now in Atlanta. The, the mm-hmm. show is now based in Atlanta, Georgia, where That's it right. used to be based in New York City. So that already includes the possibility of more culture clash, more political yeah. clash, more racial clash.
3: The producers definitely are trying to create tension in, in doing that, in that re uh, doing that sort of re um, situating of of the show. And uh, you know, I, I I come from South Carolina, like I under, I understand the impulse, but I but I just don't think. Uh, gays are the ones queer people are the ones Mm -hmm. who should be doing that kind of outreach right now and willow in her review wrote really well well about that
0: brian you use uh you use the wonderfully loaded term minstrelsy in your piece and um i will completely defer to you on that um i certainly see what you're referring to what is it possible to defend this show in the following way though that um the first show was about you know hello mainstream Mostly heteronormative America. Here's this exotic creature known as the American gay male. Uh, less frightening than you suspected. Uh, please achieve a minimal uh, degree of tolerance with regard to us. The new show, the strange exotic creature, is actually the um, the straight man undergoing the makeover because he comes from deep in Trump country. I mean, yes, it shows in Atlanta, but you know, more pointedly, it's really about how exotic non-urban, non-cosmopolitan America has become. And the question I kept asking myself watching the first episode through my larfs and tears was, you know, how reachable is this portion of America to what we consider now our default standards of, you know, uh, taste and tolerance?
2: That's actually, I think that's an interesting formulation. I, I think that is kind of what the show thinks it's up to whether or not that is in fact what it's up to. Um it is staged, right? Like they haven't select; it's self selecting, right? So we're deep in Trump country or we're deep in Atlanta. I mean, I think the show was made um in addition to setting itself in Atlanta, I was I-, I thought at first it was just gonna be just like these safaris into Trump country, but it actually diversified uh the men that they're sort of making over in all ways. Like there's way more people of color in this season than there were in the original show. There's
3: um, a gay man who's closeted actually. It's yeah. It's a very different episode. Yeah. Um
2: so all of that is different. But uh, you know, people are agreeing to be on Queer Eye for the straight guy or Queer Eye, as it's called now. So so even though we're in a place where you could encounter um, a, a former Marine who has a MAGA hat in his house and who's is a cop and his friend doesn't understand, you know, what police brutality means at this particular moment in American uh, in American politics, they're they're. They're down for this. So it's like they're it is self-selecting against like total virulent homophobes, basically. Um, so I don't know. Like it, it's it, in that way. It's like it's sort of uplifting. But it's like these people aren't actually that exotic, quote unquote. They're just, um, you know, they're they're like open minded enough to be and, and sort of um, not shy enough to like be willing to do a reality show.
1: I mean, it seems like the real the real edge they could push would be to find somebody with homophobic tendencies and try to make them over and see whether in the space of the 48 minute show you could overcome. Well, that that's kind of what resistance. that actually is what makes me the
2: uh, most uncomfortable about this season of the show, which is like the extent to which we're putting these gay men in this position to like be the ambassadors of like mm-hmm. r- correct values and then having to like convince these you know people who are convinced these possible homophobes that they should like think something better it's like that's a da- why are they having to do all the work they're they're going and being extremely nice and loving to these people who may or may not like them and then at the end these guys are like oh you you seems you you guys all seem great we we love you gay men and it's like Mm-hmm. yeah of course they were just super nice to you like that's and just a you just really got like a, you know, a free house makeover, makeover. Yeah, like yeah. a really low bar for like understanding it's like I, I like anyone who's really nice to me you know it's not
3: yeah I, I mean we throw around the word emotional labor a lot these days but this show i think is a pretty good example a true true example of that because it's, it's so, especially the episode with with the former marine who's a cop and wears the maga hat um the uh member of the team uh Karamo, who is a black man, uh, has to do so much on that episode. I mean There's this extremely uncomfortable car ride where they're talking about police brutality, and it's just like it, it's just awful to watch to, to see him have to do all of this work.
1: I oh, mean, he, and he has to be pulled over by a yeah, oh, and the, while oh, driving. And 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 there's a that joke. horrible,
3: that horrible joke at the beginning, right? Yeah, the 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 um, the, the Fab Five are in, in their sort of car doing their little plan for for meeting uh, the subject of the episode. And, yeah, the the guy's friend, who's a cop as well, pulls them over, and and it's this encounter that's like a—
1: The black guy's driving. He has to get out of the car. I mean, they're pushing some buttons really hard right there. And I don't think the show has the courage to follow up on that. No, that
3: was such a miscalculation. Um, And, uh, yeah, I think in that episode in particular, we see the weirdness of having these, you know— marginalized people have to go do all of this, this effort to get so little in return. I I, I just, I'm not sure. I think I wrote something in my piece to the effect of like what, what's in it for the queers. They're like
1: the fairies in Cinderella.
3: And
2: it almost, in that episode also, it almost feels like the guys of Fab Five are willing. It's like, they're willing to take too little. Like Mm -hmm. Karamo Mm -hmm. is like, has this conversation with this, um, this cop in the car where he's sort of talking about, you know, police violence. And like, he basically is very generous. He's just like, I just want to, like the cop says, you know, basically like, you know, we don't, I don't like want all police to be lumped in together. Obviously like we do things that are wrong sometimes and was like, just hearing you say that like you've ever done that a police officer could ever (laughs) be wrong like really makes me respect you and like, I mean just look, he's looking for so little Mm -hmm. to like be able to connect with this person and so then at the end of the episode like, you know, he's in tears like, I respect you so much as a police officer and as a father and like, you know, this taciturn, unemotive white guy is like, that was like the best, p- one of the best parts of this for me was like talking to you in the car. Like that's all yeah. he can do. And it's like, you're just getting so much work from this person to try to connect that like, mm-hmm. he, does that guy deserve that work? I, I don't know that he does. And also like no one apologizes for this opening joke, quote unquote, at the beginning of the episode, which is obviously like super traumatic for Karamo. And he talks about that and they don't seem to really, neither the the subject or the guy who did the joke really seems to grok mm-hmm. like how horrible it is to pull over a black man in the middle of the day and tell him to get out of the car and then be like I'm kidding
0: right Right. Yeah. let me make a case for what I found sort of genuinely moving about the pilot episode where they go find this man who's you know, he's middle aged by his own description he believes he's ugly he suffers from lupus uh, he's got an unkempt beard he dresses poorly he is depressed I think uh, he's also in love with his uh, as he says his my most recent ex-wife He's still in love with her, but he doesn't feel good enough for her. I mean, they really are confronting a possibly, potentially, genuinely tragic, you know, situation. And I, I, I think back to what's changed since we first discussed the Hannah Rosen uh, essay, "The End of Men." Mm. Like, I'm going to guess that was about three, four, five years ago. Which is, there's been this wholesale collapse of any kind of consensus ideal of what masculinity should be, which is an enormously healthy void, right? For most of us, it's a fucking liberation, um, you know, especially for cosmopolitan America, uh, both queer and straight, right? And and I think that the effects of that have been so confusing and so crippling for the average non-cosmopolitan American male that this ask of, a- act of ambassadorship absolutely strays into minstrelsy and the idea that, that, that all of the goodwill and generosity has to be on the part of the cosmopolitan. But I think that that, sadly, is just a measure of how completely wounded the average American male is, regards to his own closeness, his own sense of obsolescence, uh, his own sense of having been just left behind. And I I thought there was something kind of genuinely moving about that i mean they obviously there was a self-selection will you're absolutely right about that they found someone who's not a diet in the Wolf for that first episode who was not a diet in the world uh will homophobe and was an essentially decent human being and i just thought there was something genuinely moving about this guy's depression alleviating slightly in the face of these acts of generosity now i think the unspoken thing is money right i mean there's you know who paid for all, this you know, huge freaking makeover um, is left unspoken. But uh, I don't know. Am I barking completely up a false tree here?
2: No, I I also thought that episode was really sweet. That guy had a really nice energy and it was uh, Tom, I think his name was. And Mm -hmm. he was, he was so game in a way that you don't like, he just looked exactly like a person you would not think would like be super happy to be on a reality show and appreciative (laughs) of everything. And then he really was, I thought there was a lot of sweet moments in that. I mean, I, I'm skeptical about, like, the long-termness of any change wrought in yeah, a sure. our reality show. My or like, or Tom? Is, as, should he be back with his ex Yeah. Aren't especially they divorced for a reason? That I mean, I think was
3: that, th- that whole thing was very odd to me. I yeah,
2: felt like that was I, a little we, forced and a little, like... Yeah. It's almost like condescending old people, like, cute relationship. Mm-hmm. Who knows if that's, like, a real thing. But, I mean, you know, I, I found that episode sweet. But there was a... Mo- I, mean, I just want to actually talk about Jonathan just like briefly and this as a way to talk about Jonathan which is like Tom asks a question in the car Um, he's sitting with two of the guys one Jonathan who's like the groomer who also does this hilarious recap show Gay of Thrones Um, and Bobby who's like um, the interior interior decorator and he sort of says are either of you married and Bobby is married and he says who's the husband and Bobby's like that's kind of an offensive question and Jonathan's like that's kind of an offensive question and then goes off on this totally wackadoo rant about like just it does it's very hard to follow. It ends about like moon signs and, moon suns, energy, and sun energy, moon energy, energy and, like <laughs> feminine and masculine, and you can see Bobby's just like that wasn't really helpful. And then it's just like <laughs> we both wear the pants, and you can sort of see that like Bobby wants that moment back almost. Like if this is a teaching experience, he wants to really like talk to Tom and like get get like er- eradicate this homophobia. And and Jonathan basically is not helping him in that project, and. And I watched that and that's sort of my first read on it. And then I sort of like came to think like Jonathan had made that moment amazing because Mm -hmm. he's just like not going to be anyone but himself. Like he's he's so like flirtatious with all of the straight guys. He calls them her like he just is himself. He's just not as as Brian said in his piece like he's just doing no um, code switching. switching, He just refuses to do it. And so he does like botch this moment of education, quote unquote, but like. He's just being himself. And so it's like in this way, it's like I felt like, oh, you're not you're asking this person to do the emotional labor here. Like you're just asking them to like meet you where you are. And Tom totally like it's so delighted by Jonathan and tickled by him and like really didn't need. And in a way, like that's the better answer to the question. It's just like, oh, you guys are lovely. Like whatever i think weird things about marriage
3: (laughs) jonathan jonathan is definitely the most interesting person on it to me because he is so yes so unwilling like he will be present and he will sort of ply his trade but he is changing nothing else he's not interested in yeah not interested in code switching not interested in like making you comfortable uh and i think that's the kind of encounter that needs to happen like that that's that's a meeting of two kinds of difference uh and you know if both parties can kind of sit with that discomfort maybe something good can come from it but it doesn't like drain you know all of the all of the emotion out of the the, the queer person to, to do that
2: i felt like everyone's basically euphoric response to jonathan was like the most heartwarming thing about the show that like he's just himself and like basically they all seem to get a huge kick out of him and maybe it's a little condescending where they're like you're this like gay imp and not ha 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 but like also they're they're just like they seem like he sort of wins them over and they're like this is fun like this is fine let's make jokes and just like be our silly
3: yeah i don't think the show treats him as a joke i, I think i think it's, it's 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 a hard line to walk but i I think he actually comes out as seeming
0: the most authentic of, yeah he's of all my of favorite
1: them. of the new cast as well yeah, yeah.
0: Mm, all right um brian are you gonna watch the whole run or are you are you done uh yeah yeah I, I definitely
3: i've actually watched most of it already yep Oh, cool. Okay. Um, it
0: is on will, Netflix, Steve. It is on
2: Netflix, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you wanted us to stop it, too. Skip intro, yeah.
0: <laughs> Here we go. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty into it. But uh, Brian, you've convinced me. Will, you convince convinced me. Both of your pieces, by the way, are terrific. I commend them to our readers, and we will link to them. Brian, thank you so much for coming back on the show. A total pleasure. Thank you so much. What is going on with the New York Times op-ed page? Last week, Quinn Norton, a uh, tech journalist with a specialty in the hacker subculture, was set to become the editorial board's lead opinion writer on, quote-unquote, power culture and the consequences of technology within hours. The job offer had been rescinded. It turned out Quinn Norton had a history on Twitter, which we'll get into in a second. But more generally, last year, uh, James Bennett, who's the editorial page editor of the New York Times, hired conservative columnist Brett Stevens, immediately greeted with outrage because he quibbles enough with climate science to be plausibly called a climate denier. Readers are also upset about Barry Weiss. An editor and writer for the opinion pages, in part for an season Ansari take that uh, they roundly disagree with, um, plus some tweets. Just in the last 24, 48 hours, something like that, there was an absurd, contrarian, uh, and trivial uh, article about women wearing yoga pants. And just this morning, there's a column by David Brooks, the uh, conservative workhorse of the New York Times op-ed page, arguing that guns are, wait for it, a sacred cross in the culture war for liberals and not conservatives. There there have been so many incidents lately, it's hard to know really where to begin, but let's just pick one. So Barry Weiss, an op-ed writer for The Times, and saw Mirai Nagasu land a extremely difficult triple axle. Uh, this made Nagasu the first American woman to land a triple axle in Olympic competition. Barry Weiss takes to Twitter and tweets out, immigrants, they get the job done. At which point is she at which point she is deluged and ratioed with people telling her that Nagasu is not an immigrant. She's an American citizen, was born in California To parents who were themselves Japanese immigrants, Barry Weiss, instead of graciously pulling back, doubles down on the Hamilton quote, tells a little bit of a fib, says that her, she deletes the tweet, but then defends it uh, attacking back and claims that she had tweeted, immigrants, we get the job done, which I think is, you know, just a little bit cowardly. But anyway, Willa, pick it up for me. Was this snowflaking or was this uh, a just cause?
2: Well, it's such an interesting moment because what's happening with the page, the op-ed page in general and this tweet, which was not even on the op-ed page, is like a kind of good example, is there's a lot of, I think, confusion and overlap around what a successful op-ed page is. Like, is a successful op-ed and a successful op-ed page one that creates a huge amount of engagement, even if it's furious and hating, like the people who are writing, Um, or is it one that is you know, intellectually provocative and rigorous and um, may, you know, force people to think in a different way, but not make them think in a way where you're like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever read. And I think that there is a little bit, um, and this is not just specific to the Times op-ed page, there is a lot of confusion around this sort of question everywhere in media right now, which is like, the difference between a hot take that is gets you a huge amount of traffic and is great for getting a huge amount of traffic and a hot take that is great for getting a huge amount of traffic and it might actually also be interesting and thoughtful. So, like, you know, um, one of Barry Weiss's, I think the piece that sort of announced her, because she's really an editor at the, she's an editor on the op-ed desk or at the on the editorial desk, uh, she wrote this piece about Aziz Ansari and, like, someone had, who had worked with her, Tweeted a picture of Chartbeat and said, "Like this is what Chartbeat looks like right now because of this Barry Weiss piece." And like the, it was like a, it's like a, a, it's like the dashboard of a car, you know, where like the speed goes up, and like the 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 arrow was like off, it was like off the charts, you know. And so that piece then is a huge success internally. Like it was it was Mm. it was treated as a huge success by Barry Weiss. It was sort of treated as a huge success in that tweet. But it's like, was that piece actually? How good was that piece, you know? And so, so and that piece, you know, uh, there, that piece was problematic, had a lot of things. But, I mean, it maybe was making um, a sort of polemical case for why this Aziz Ansari story was a sign that Me Too had... Not, it wasn't actually a sign about Me Too going far. Her argument was that it was sort of suggesting that women have no agency in our understanding of Me Too. So you could Im- imagine a more nuanced take of that that might have been interesting. I, I'm just to say that it's like I don't know that... They know, like if they Mm -hmm. have a way of telling internally, like what is good and what gets traffic and like Mm -hmm. what the difference between those things are or if it's worth and they're trying to figure it out. And if it's actually and and also if it's even worth unwrapping those things, because, you know, you'd really just need (laughs) the traffic in a way.
1: Yeah, it makes me wish that Julia were here. I mean, I'm very happy that you're here, Will, but I wish Julia were here too because she always has this very interestingly dismissive take on the op-ed page. There's a little bit of a sense that the op-ed page is this hidebound institution that just cranks on independently of the rest of the paper and that happens on the left as well as the right, right? I mean, there's kind of a sense that Maureen Dowd always writes the same column and Gail Collins, while I find her hilarious, basically always writes the same column and everybody just has their niche that they fit in.
2: And I think it is, you know, there are people writing for the op-ed page who are very good and that are new hires like Lindy West is a recent hire, like Michelle Goldberg from a slate, you know, staffer is, is there. I think that they've made efforts to like beef up their team on all sides, but it is just like this conservative position is such a weird place because it's like what real conservative wants to write for the New York times. And like, Mm -hmm. what could a new conservative say that wouldn't infuriate New York times readers? Is there like a really smart I mean, and this is the point. It's like this is actually David Brooks. Like David Brooks is not – is a is conservative for The Times op-ed page and he writes ridiculous things all the time. But he is not like a hardline conservative that like conservatives will think – saying things that they have to listen to. So it's like – it's it's just a weird position because it's like it's just mm-hmm. – a, it's a conservative who's talking to liberals basically. So like of course they're going to make us crazy. Is there a way to do that that wouldn't just make us crazy? If if they
1: weren't mm-hmm. making us crazy, would they
2: even be doing their
1: job? You right. Know? And to be added to that, what exactly is to be gained from making us crazy? Is that a journalistic gesture? Is it some sort of attempt toward being fair and balanced between the two sides? Well, that's that's I think what's so enraging about it is
2: this idea that they are trying to be fair and balanced in this way that like – feels as debunked as, like, the Fox slogan, where it's like, what? Mm-hmm. Let's just tell the truth. Especially, You're tra- well,
1: especially in this Trump moment, right? It's one thing for Ross that and it, that gang to be going on about their stuff under Obama, but when the right is as clearly intellectually and morally bankrupt as it has become at this moment, mm-hmm. it's, it just seems right. like it's really hard to dig up anyone intelligent to defend it. Well, I don't think... Th- I, don't, I don't know that the page is actually... They don't have any Trump defenders,
2: particularly. They're always, like, trying to print you know people who have who have voted for like they're trying to they have people that write those but they're not like on staff those are like freelance mm-hmm. submissions
0: right and there i mean it seems to me there are a couple of competing problems and adjudicating between them isn't easy so in that sense i think maybe some you know charity can be extended to James Bennett who has by and large been a brilliant journalist and editor throughout his entire career the the one conflict is between as Dana points out, a right wing in this country that's gone completely insane and then uses as a loyalty test your willingness to be insane with them. And if you're not, they excommunicate you as a conservative. This creates orphans, sort of like David Brooks, who can't follow them down the rat hole of Trump, um, but also has to continually establish somewhere or another his bona fides as a not liberal in order to keep his niche you know, viable at the times. So he repeatedly writes you know, superficially sane sounding things that are on the tiniest scratch of, you know, scratch of the surface turn out to be completely ridiculous or untenable. You know, they hire someone like Brett Stevens, who can be somewhat rational on some issues, but needs to prove his bona fides, but being contrarian on others, including an enormously, you know, sort of globally existential one like, like global warming. So you've got this one enormous problem, which is this sort of general state of American conservatism, but you've got another problem, which is that by and large in the age of the internet, people do construct mirrors uh, and like to have their own predispositions reflected back to them as, you know, b- b- rock hard ontological fact. And so this the, the, the difficult question as I see it is, well, you know, how are you going to let the predispositions of the Times readership determine which, you know, what's in bounds and what's out of bounds, right? You're not going to put a Holocaust denier on the pages of the op-ed simply because it inflame. you know, it doesn't take on truth value or any value by inflaming the sensibilities of 99%, if not 100% of the people who ra- read the paper. At the same time, can you really say, you know, Jack Schaefer had a brilliant column. He said, you know, a real business difference has occurred in the last couple of years, which is, um reader subscriptions thanks to the explosion of digital subscriptions is now 60% of revenue for the New York Times this is a historic shift they classically newspapers have been overwhelmingly uh financially driven by ads and classified ads your readers you are now answerable to readers in a completely new way is it healthy for the newspaper to go in the other extreme and say You know, we have a completely unified sensibility as a newspaper. It's clearly left of center. And therefore, you know, um, anything that inflames the sensibilities of that core group of readers is out of bounds. I'm not saying I know where this line has to be drawn, but I see that it's difficult to draw it.
2: I think also leftists might say the Times just is the center and they don't have to move rightward to prove that. Like... That there is a little that that is that that that's sort of what is some of the problem here it's like they're trying to prove something to people who will never read the New york times like I, I mean I think this gets a little bit into this issue of this memo that James Bennett, who is the head of the, of the editorial operation at the times, had released last week sort of in in the wake of the Barry Weiss tweets, which were um which were discussed very critically even on internal like internal New York Times slack chat rooms um he, he sort of released it sort of like a long memo about like what they're doing they're trying to you know that was sort of talked about the mission of the New York Times to challenge readers to um, to be provocative basically and he sort of he was he was asking he was saying what their project is and sort of asking for them to like Give each other the benefit of the doubt to give their colleagues the benefit of the doubt to air their grievances. They have them directly with him and people at the op-ed page and not sort of publicly. And he sort of at the end, he sort of at the end he said, you know, these people are all operating in good faith. And and I just think that that's a little bit that's not quite true. And I don't I don't even mean that they're operating in bad faith exactly, but there is just something about the form which is so polemical and ridiculous that like a good op-ed doesn't always or not even like a a fiery op-ed, an op-ed that enrages people, doesn't always – it doesn't modulate itself. It doesn't make room for arguments that are persuasive, that are not it. And so there is something – there is just something cartoony and um, overstated often about even – very effective op-ed page so it's like is that is that person i mean there's some of these arguments that they have made which just feel like they are just not really made whatever good faith means it sort of evaporates like brett stevens writes wrote that piece about how he doesn't believe dylan farrow and he like done bare minimal research Mm, about mm. dylan farrow and was saying like it just i mean it just it was so like that just feels like that is just to be provocative like how could that op have been written in, what does good faith even mean if you're saying that? Like he believed that yeah. because he didn't challenge himself to think about it for more than the 30 mm-hmm. minutes it took him to write or whatever?
0: Well, I agree with everything you just said. I would extend it in another direction too, which is that there is and always has been a deep fundamental problem with liberalism itself. And Robert Frost put his finger on it when he said uh, he defined a liberal as someone too broad-minded to take his own side in an argument. And there's just a fundamentally growth structure to uh, political debate in this country by which conservatives conceive of themselves as being in an existential war against liberals who must be totally defeated because they are so corrupt and alien and their authority is so arbitrary and fulsome, right? At the same time, they say to liberals, oh, you owe us respect, sensitivity, dialogue, and compromise. And the right wing has exploited that deep contradiction of liberalism so cynically and so beautifully that we're always locked into a contradiction whereby we either take a stand, we defy Frost's definition, and we say, this is what we believe in. We believe in gun control, and we're sort of done. I mean, this is what these kids in um, Florida are saying and why their speech is so thrilling and so shocking. They are no longer engaging in a broad-minded debate about whether or not the Second Amendment on and on and on and on. They're like, fuck you. We're through. This discussion is over. Our lives have been sacrificed. The time has come for gun control. The The discussion has stopped. Okay. At which point they're vulnerable, not from me. Believe me, I, they are heroes, full stop to me. But they are vulnerable to the accusation that how they're being closed-minded. Now they're not being good liberals. And and anyway, I see this as the fundamental contradiction at the heart of the op-ed page, by which we have to prove over and over again we're liberals by allowing someone to say someone absurd and not fully challenging it.
2: You know, when my uh, when Quinn Norton was hired. And fired within seven hours. Um, this was another brouhaha from last week at the Times op-ed page. A friend of mine, we were sort of texting about it, and she was saying she basically said like This is just going to make this is going to be like ammo for quote unquote like them that the like you know the snowflakey liberals have like forced the New York Times to like kowtow to our desire not to have a friend of Nazis working for the op-ed page. But I just sort of in that moment I just felt like. Why do we owe them, quote unquote, why does the New York Times owe them anything? The New York Times owes its readership and that's like it it owes its readership something. And there's a way to challenge the readership and to be thoughtful um, without – Trying to win points with people who will never read the Times. Alex Perrin had a tweet that I sh- want to look up, but it was basically like, I don't know what James Bennett thinks he's doing. Like that, the role of the conservative at the Times should be to write things that make people who do not agree with him or her think that's really smart. And if that person isn't doing that job, then like that is that is all that job should be. And anything else is 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 just like that. That is just definitionally what that job should be. And I think that instead they're sort of going. They're doing something sort of floppier and like more traffic based and more like trying to get people who are not reading, are not the Times smartest readers to be, you know, um, intrigued by their arguments. They're just, it's like low hanging fruit.
0: Mm. All right. Well, this will certainly generate some dialogue on our Facebook page. Uh, we'd love to hear what you think about uh, our politics, the politics of the op-ed page and uh, various fights contained therein. Facebook.com slash Culture All right. Moving on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse day na 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 na
1: It's a fanfare. It's become <laughs> like a little trumpet sort of theme. Um Yes, my endorsement this week is related to our Slate Plus segment, where we get to talk to one of the producers of Call Me By Your Name, which I think was one of our favorite movies of last year. And uh, he talks a lot about the novel that the movie was based on by Andre Aciman and, uh, and how he got the idea upon reading that book that it would make a great movie which it did and so i'm endorsing that book as read by army hammer on audible.com and uh although the book is told from the point of view of elio the character that that army hammer's character falls in love with um it's just related so beautifully by the rich baritone voice of of army hammer and of course given the conceit of call me by your name right that the two lovers use each other's names as nicknames and sort of become this 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 pair of doubles it actually makes complete sense that uh that Elio's voice would be enacted by, by Oliver, his, his boyfriend. Um, so yeah, if you want to read the Asiman novel while you do other things and hear a rich, beautiful voice narrating it to you, it just it couldn't sound better. I'm not through the book yet. I'm about maybe a quarter of the way in or something, but it's just such a pleasure to have Army Hammer take you to summer in Italy.
0: Oh, wonderful. Um, Willow. what do you have?
2: I'm going to recommend um, The Panorama of New York City at the Queen's Museum. Which is like this? Uh, it's from like the 1964 World's Fair. It was updated, I think, in 1988. It's this extremely detailed panora- panorama of all five boroughs. It's in a room that's very large and goes to night and goes to day, and it's just so enticing. I don't know, like everything, every single detail of it is correct. I went to my little children. There's airplanes that land at LaGuardia. It's like really fascinating. If you live anywhere in New York City, or have ever lived in anywhere in New York City, or just interested in New York City, just to, like see all the little places and and think about how someone designed every single little tree and every single little house and Mm. how the city has changed. There was also, when I was there this weekend, an exhibit that's closed since um, called Never New York about all the things they have been proposed to be built in New York that never got actually built. And they had a lot of them on the map. And it was so cool and weird. Someone had like proposed building like a bunch of power plants in Harlem. I mean, there's like all these weird uh, buildings that we Didn't recognize her on it, but even without it, the map would be amazing, and that's my recommendation.
1: Oh yeah, I love that room, and I lived in New York for years, hearing hearing that it was great, and it sort of seemed so out of the way and so hard to get there, and I was so glad when I finally made the voyage. If you like just miniatures and dollhouses and sort of looking at things in scale, it's just it's just completely fun on that level.
2: And then there's also all the other World's Fair stuff outside, like the Hemisphere. This huge globe is out there. The thing from Men in Black, those famous towers. Like it's just a weird. There's a bunch like, and it's all sort of like futuristic from from 1964, which is so interesting because their idea of the future and what the actual future looks like. Yeah, yeah not, I mean, old, right. old World's
1: Fair sites always have yeah. that quality. I also just want to mention that the new Todd Haynes movie, Wonderstruck, has a significant plot point built around that scale model. Of oh, really? At the Queen's Museum. Yeah, there's a really important scene that takes place there and uh, and you get a little bit more of an uh, inside view of it because when you see it at the museum, you have to walk around it on a platform, right? You can't actually walk in among the buildings, but some of the characters in that movie do and it's really neat.
0: Mm. Uh, that sounds, I've never seen that. I've always wanted to check it out. So now I will do. Um, so I, um, was asked to host an event at Bard this past week, uh, featuring Joe Hagan, the author, author of Sticky Fingers, Life and Times of Yon Winter and the, and Rolling Stone magazine. I'm a huge fan of Joe Hagen's. I've never met him before, so I was very eager to read anything he wrote. Uh, on the other hand, I hate The Baby Boomers and had no desire to wade through 400 plus pages on Jan Wenner. Well, it turns out that in this Zoroastrian struggle for my attention and affection, Joe Hagen dominated uh, my antipathy to The Baby Boomers. The book is ter- it's terrific. And for a book that's that long, it's superbly well and elegantly written. And presented, and it essentially makes the argument that Wenner is the baby boomer, the archetypal baby boomer, and that it was his, it was his uh, zealous enthusiasms that really shaped the generation and the self understanding of the generation as much as anything. And just some incredible facts that, that for example, Doctor Spock was his pediatrician. That he, in the famous photograph of Mario Savio being hustled off the stage of the Berkeley Amphitheater, behind him is this young, pudgy cub reporter for the Berkeley um, newspaper. It's Jan Wenner on and on and on. I mean, sort of the first super fan of Dylan and the Beatles and obviously what he ended up doing was creating a whole consciousness around his generation's affection for rock music, a kind of music that they took completely as their own and then getting every kind of celebrity to conform to the model of the rock star, essentially, including political celebrity for better and for worse. And what's great about Hagen is that he's a wonderful Virgil for this journey uh, in addition to being, you know, kind of skeptical but, but agnostic enough that there's nothing withering about it. Um, But uh, and then also just on a page by page basis, the cameos, I mean, sort of the creation of Hunter S. Thompson and uh, um, Annie Leibovitz as, uh, you know, iconic people in their own right who become iconic, making an iconography out of the baby boomer landscape. Joan Joan Didion is appearing regularly at the salon that Wenner used to hold. Uh, while he was still located, while he and the magazine were both still located in San Francisco. It's a remarkable achievement. And then as a second endorsement, Joe and I and a bunch of people affiliated with Bard went out to dinner at a restaurant called Gaskins, G-A-S-K-I-N-S. I don't believe I've uh, endorsed it before, which is a gross malfeasance on my part. It's the best restaurant upstate right now by far. If you go to Hudson, it's worth taking the 20-25-minute 20, drive outside of Hudson. It's in Germantown, New York, New uh, Chef just got nominated for a James Beard Award. Totally deserves it. They've made a place that is both so look and so tasty. It's not fussy, but it's also done with elegance and care. Gaskins is a wonderful restaurant. You should go to it. Thank you, Willa.
2: Thank you. I- extra, p- I can't believe you just used that german word that i've never actually said out loud so me See, me. <laughs> i'm sure i mispronounced it
0: <laughs> i'm sure and misused just for the
2: it. just for trying points just for trying i, I love points it. for trying not that i
0: love more <laughs> dana thanks so much thanks Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Drop us a note at our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash culturefest. We have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cultfest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Daniel Schrader. Executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Liktai. For Dana Stevens and Will Paskin, thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon.